Good morning. Jeremy said that he is a person that likes to do things quickly. I am a person that likes to do things very slowly. And so it is good that we have people of different types as elders. I am partly uh, relieved that we don't have to enter into a campaign to raise money for a building. And I'm very content in waiting on what the Lord has for us as far as a building goes. And so I hope that you are as well just thankful for the Lord and for the clarity that he gives us, the, the direction that he gives us, the wisdom that he gives us. And we know that uh, whatever he has for us uh, is going to be exactly what we need for our growth in godliness and for his glory. And so we have that confidence. This morning we begin a new series, uh, one that will take place over the next couple of months, the entire summer, as it were. We're going to be looking at uh, the letter of Paul, the apostle to the church at Ephesus, but only uh, the first chapter, actually verse 3 through 14, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And I told you that last week, those of you who were here, I told you we would be spending the entire summer on verses 3 through 14. And my challenge to us for this summer is that we would, as a church, memorize this passage together. And so it's going to be 10 weeks total of a series on this passage and more than enough opportunity for us to memorize this together. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. By the end of the summer, we're not even going to need our Bibles. I am using the ESV. I would encourage you to memorize it out of the ESV just so that we are all on the same page. If you want to memorize it in the NIV, fine. The NASB, great. The King James Version, blessings on you. But I'm going to be in the ESV. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, follow along as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I would like to begin this morning on a dusty, hot road on the way to an ancient town called Damascus where a young Pharisee who had been taught under the tutelage of Gamaliel, a promising young Pharisee, was on his way there to Damascus to find, to locate, to arrest those who defined or identified themselves as being in the way. The way. They were followers of a man named Jesus who had proclaimed himself the Messiah, who had referred to himself as being one with God. And Saul, Saul of Tarsus was his name, was on the way to Damascus to find these heretics, to bring them to justice. And as he was on his way, he was confronted by Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, met him on the way to Damascus in bright, brilliant light. Jesus confronted him. Do you remember what Jesus asked him as Saul of Tarsus was thrown by the brilliance of this light, thrown to the ground? Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul responded, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, the one whom you persecute. It was on that day that Saul of Tarsus was converted to the way himself. As Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That day, Saul of Tarsus became Paul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And that day was the first time he was instructed in what we are going to talk about today. Union with Christ. You see, as he was on his way to find, to locate, and to arrest those believers in Jesus, he was instructed that, in fact, when he went to persecute Christians, he was persecuting Jesus himself. For Jesus is joined, he is in union with 
those who are his people. He is one with them. To persecute believers is to persecute Jesus himself. It is the Apostle Paul who was converted on the road to Damascus. That Apostle is the writer of this letter to the church at Ephesus. And it is that Apostle, the Apostle Paul, who will instruct us in this wonderful awe-creating truth of union with Christ. In fact, if you were to ask Paul to identify himself, Paul would not call himself a Christian. Do you understand that? Paul would not refer to himself as a Christian. Uh, To call someone in his day a Christian was a pejorative term. It was a term of mockery. It was not something uh, that was used in a positive way. Paul would not have understood himself as a Christian. No, if you asked Paul, Paul, who are you? Paul would have said, and Paul understood himself to be a man who was in Christ. I am in Christ. And this language of being joined with Christ or being in Christ, it permeates the entire New Testament. In fact, it's the language of the New Testament. The responsibility today to show you this from the New Testament, it's not about trying to find some verses here and there to piece this together. The, the, The work of it is actually to narrow it down. To talk about it in a way that's, that's, that's succinct. Because it is on every page of the New Testament. This reality that we are in Christ. We are joined with him as his people. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 14 is, is a wonderful text that opens up this truth of union with Christ. Look at the very first verse there. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And in in the Greek, actually, it says this, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And at the very end of that phrase, it says, in Christ. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. And as we were reading through, you saw that, didn't you? In Him He chose us. In Him. Through Christ. In the Beloved. That is how Paul understood himself. And this is how we too are to understand ourselves. We are in Christ. This morning, I want to take that prepositional phrase, in Christ. And I want to spend our time together this morning looking at just that one prepositional phrase, what it means to be in Christ. Now, I I don't attempt a a comprehensive look at this truth. Uh, This is not the final word. We're going to spend the entire summer unfolding 
this doctrine of being in Christ, being one with Christ. Uh, Today, I have two goals. First, I want to speak to the the nature. What is the nature of this union with Christ? And secondly, I would like to create in you a longing for an understanding of this reality of being in Christ and a desire to see a real, vital, effective application of this reality to your life. So again, two goals today. I I don't mean to cover everything there is to cover. I would have to read the entire New Testament. All I seek to, to attempt today is to show you the nature of this union with Christ and to give you a longing for it, an understanding of it, and a real application of it to your life just to create in you that longing and that desire for it. In Christ is the language that Paul uses most often. You also see through Christ, by Christ, with Christ. All of these uh, refer to this doctrine of union, this reality of union with Christ. When Paul speaks of being in Christ, he is speaking of that mysterious spiritual union of God's people to God the Son. This reality, this reality of union with Christ is vital for our lives. It is essential. It is necessary. This is how we must understand ourselves. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan author, said it this way, Being in Christ and united to Him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. Jonathan Edwards said, By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he doth really possess all things. J.I. Packer said it this way, Union with Christ is indeed the definition of Christianity. John Murray said, Nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Union with Christ is everything. It should not be seen as a category alongside other categories of salvation. When we think of salvation, we think of doctrines such as justification, or regeneration, or sanctification, or glorification. And if you're here and you're listening to that and you're going, I have no idea what any of those words mean. That's okay. You're in good company here. There's a lot of people who don't understand what all of those words mean. But I just have to tell you that all of those terms and all of those definitions, they all find their reality in this one blessed truth. That they are true because we are are in Christ. You cannot separate any of them from the reality that we are in Christ. It has been said, and I think right, rightfully so, that justification, justification by faith, 
is the central doctrine of Christianity. I think that is, there's some truth to that. But I want you to understand this morning that that, that was the truth Martin Luther discovered that, that set off the Reformation. That he is justified by faith alone, not by works. By faith. But what is that faith in? In Jesus Christ. Justification. The reality of justification does not exist apart from being in Christ. And so it is this reality that we need to seek to understand and seek to grab a hold of and seek to pursue in our understanding. If we are to understand these other doctrines, we must first understand that we are in Christ. I would like to speak then today to the nature of this union. I have three points. The nature of this union. First, I want you to know today that union with Christ is a real spiritual union. A real spiritual union. Beloved, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have been brought into the spiritual life of Jesus, the Son. Let me say that again. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then you, by His Spirit, have been brought into the spiritual life of Jesus, the Son. You have been made one with Him in His spiritual life. Romans 6 says it this way. Listen to the words of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to Colossians 3. If then... Or, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Again, there are many, many passages we could turn to. But I want you to see that union with Christ is a real, spiritual union. We have been brought into the life of Jesus. What is that? mean listen God the Father sent 
His Son. And Jesus put on flesh. He became flesh and blood. He became a human. And as a human, as a man, as true man, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. Jesus lived as a man was intended to live. He lived perfectly as a man, yet without sin. And then, God the Father placed upon him the sin of mankind. Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. Jesus put on the sin of man. And because He bore the sin of man, He suffered the judgment of God against sin. He experienced the judgment, the wrath of God against sin. Jesus experienced that wrath and that justice of God against sin. And He died and was buried for the wages of sin is death. But the Father heard His Son because, Hebrews says, because of His reverence, His prayer was heard. And God the Father raised the Son, Jesus, from the dead. Listen, He saved the Son from death and from sin. Not His own sin, from our sin. He rescued Him from sin and from death. And then the Father exalted the Son, raised Him up and He ascended and He exalted Him to His right hand, the place of honor and glory and praise. And there the Son sits in the heavenly places, exalted once and for all as Lord of all. You and I, we have been joined with His spiritual life. His life of obedience to the law and perfect life. His life is my life. I've been joined with Him. And His life is now mine. His death for sin is my death and your death if you are in Christ. His salvation from death and from sin has now been made your salvation from death and sin. And His exaltation, as we see here in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has placed us in Him. 
And His life is now ours. We have been joined with Him. And entered into His life. This is our reality. It is real. It is true. John 17, a passage that we went over in our preview services. I want to read you an excerpt from John 17. Listen to verse 20 through 22. Jesus is praying here and He says, I do not ask for these only. He's praying for His followers. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, Listen to this. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may all that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this is the glorious reality of the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. God, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says, God was in Him, reconciling the world to Himself. The Father was in Him and He was in the Father and at the very same time, He was in us and we were in Him and through His work, His perfect work as 100% God and 100% man, He has brought us into complete communion with God. Which is the point of all creation. Jesus has accomplished this union with God. We have been made one with Him by the work of His Spirit. As we see in Ephesians, verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, listen, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We have been made one with Him by the work of the Spirit, and His life is now our life. The nature of this union with Christ is real. A real spiritual union, and secondly, as a result of this, it is also mysterious. It is a mysterious union. John Calvin called it a mystical union. 
He said that mystical union with Christ is accorded by us the highest degree of importance. What does he mean by mystical? That word can have a lot of different meanings. I want to be clear when I say that union with Christ is mysterious. What I mean to communicate is this. Union with Christ cannot be discovered or understood apart from God's Word. Union with Christ cannot be discovered apart from God's Word, from the revelation of God in His Word. It also, when I say it is mysterious, I mean to communicate that it is impossible to fully comprehend union with Christ. You cannot comprehend it fully. And because of this, because it cannot be discovered apart from God's Word, and because it cannot be fully comprehended, it is meant, this reality of union with Christ and its mystery, is meant to hold us as God's people in a state of humility and dependence and wonder at what God has done. As a brief sidebar or excursus, brief, very brief, I want to say that this is part of the danger of people who want to do theology. I hear people talk about doing theology or practicing theology or studying theology. The goal of studying theology is not to reach a place where we fully comprehend. Because the one we seek to know is God. He is infinite. He is beyond our understanding. Listen to this. It's so important. Because so many people do theology thinking that they have somehow come to a place where they fully comprehend God. And this is what creates arrogance and pride and a judgmental spirit. May I just suggest, if you ever come to the place where you think you comprehend God, it is not God that you are comprehending. It is something else. For as we come close to this reality of union with Christ, at once, when when I'm talking about the fact that we have been joined with His life, At once, our hearts are encouraged by that. We go, that's amazing. And then at the very same time, we go, wait, I don't think I can understand that. Exactly. Exactly. Because you don't understand it, it holds you a place of of humility and wonder. And we can spend the rest of our life coming into more and more of an understanding of what it means to be joined with Christ. In fact, this is the Christian life. Growing, ever growing in our understanding of what what we have been made part of. Who we have been made part of. So I, I I want you to understand, the goal here of union with Christ is not to come to a place where you can understand all the technicalities of it. The goal is for it to hold you in amazement and thankfulness. I must also say, And this is wonderful, blessed truth. 
the understanding of union with Christ is not necessary to activate its truth. The understanding of union with Christ is not necessary to activate the truthfulness of it. It is true. It is real. It is beyond your comprehension. You may say this morning, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Beloved, it is enough to simply believe it to be true. And grow in your understanding of it. The Apostle Paul, the writers of the New Testament, spend a lot of energy explaining union with Christ. And one of the ways that the Apostle Paul actually, throughout the New Testament, and even here in the book of Ephesians, one of the ways he does that is with the use of metaphors. One author said this, the number of metaphors used in Scripture to teach this truth shows us how important this reality is. The variety of metaphors, he goes on to say, shows us how far-reaching this reality is. I have, in the book of Ephesians alone, three metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses, and he uses these in other places, but I'll use the ones here in Ephesians since this is where we're at. Ephesians 2, 19-22. Listen to these words. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation. So he's using structural, architectural language and picture here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here we see the metaphor of a building. Being in Christ, Paul says, is a building. Being a building. Christ Himself being the cornerstone of that building. And all of us, the whole structure being joined together in Him and grows into a holy temple in in the Lord. We are being built by the Spirit for a dwelling place for God. This shows us how Christ in Himself has taken Jew and Gentile This is the way people understood themselves, Jew and Gentile. And he, through his flesh, through his body, has made one new man, a new race, a new humanity. And Paul wants his readers to understand that they are no longer defined by Jewishness or being a Gentile. Now they are defined by being in Christ and they are joined together as a building built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, they are being joined together as a building and Jesus himself is the cornerstone of that building. We're joined in him. Ephesians 4, 
I just, I just got to tell you, I want to read all of these chapters, just all of them. But Ephesians 4, I'll just read again an excerpt, verse 12 through 16. The Apostle Paul is talking about the ministry, the work of the ministry. He says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What is, what is that ministry? For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here, he's using the language of body. In Ephesians 2, he uses the language of building, which Jesus is the cornerstone. Now he uses the language of body, anatomy. He says, we are growing up to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here is this language of body. And where is Christ in this body? He is its head. He is the head of the body. And we are to grow up into Him is the authority Without the head, the body has no life. Without the head, the body has no direction. He is the head. And maturity is growing up into Him. So He uses the metaphor of building. He uses the metaphor of body. And then in Ephesians 5, He uses the metaphor of marriage or being the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 28-32. In the same way, he says to husbands, in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. So he's taking that body language and and he's developing a little bit here. We are members of his body. He says, therefore, he's quoting Genesis here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, he says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is the mystery he wants you to discover. He wants you to know that Christ has joined himself with his bride, the church, his body. And now they are one. On April 6th, 2007, I entered into a union with Christy Carolyn Iskett. Last name Iskett. At that point, two people, according to God's 
decree, two people became one. Now you look and you can still see me and you can still see Christy. She has taken on my name. We have children together. But I can tell you that on April 6, 2007, I had no clue what union in marriage meant. No clue. I'm now a little over 15 years into it, and I will say I have a little bit of a clue, still not much of a clue. But that day, two people. Now, if you look at us, you see, you see, still see two people. But do you know what? In a real way, those two people became one. And my marriage and her marriage to me, my marriage to her and her marriage to me, ha- has been all about seeking to understand the implications of that oneness. Saying no to self, dying to self, saying yes to this new reality, this new union that's been made between us. This is what we need to be pursuing. And then you step back and realize that marriage, as wonderful and as blessed as it is, is not the ultimate point. This is what he says in Ephesians. As wonderful as marriage is, it is not ultimate. As wonderful as marriage to Christy is, it is not ultimate. That union, I'm seeking to find out what that even means. I asked her the other night, we were out on a date night, and I hope that's okay that I mentioned that. I'm going to check later. <laughs> but I'm on a date night, and I say, what, is, what does that union mean? What does union together mean? What does that look, what does that look like? I have the things I enjoy, you have the things you enjoy. And, and I mean, we, what does it look like to become one? To live out what is already true of us. <clears throat> as wonderful as that union is, it is not ultimate. You step back and you realize, Paul says, this wonderful reality of marriage and union is actually meant to picture something far more glorious and indeed ultimate. And that is union with Christ. My marriage to Christy is meant to picture union with Christ. He says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and His church. Did you know if you are a believer here this morning, I want you to hear this. You have been wed to Christ. You have been wed to Him. We often think about union, marriage, and how complicated that is, but how wonderful it is. 
I, I want you from this day forward, I want you to begin contemplating what does it mean that I have been wed to Christ? I'm his bride. We are one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 speaks of this union with Christ. And it does so in a powerful way. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Even as we sin, beloved, do you understand that we take Christ with us in that? We are joined with him. The last point I want to give you, it is a real spiritual union. The nature of union with Christ is a real spiritual union. It is a mysterious union, a mysterious union that should and is meant to boggle your mind and keep you and hold you in awe and amazement and wonder and thankfulness. And it is a union that is a vital union. A vital union, meaning it is life-giving, it is necessary, it is essential to life, this union with Christ. Paul the Apostle is not the only one who talks about union with Christ. In fact, this language comes from Jesus himself. John 15, John the Apostle records the words of Jesus where Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is union with Christ. Speaking to the vitality, the life-giving necessity of being joined with Christ. Galatians 2.20. Paul the Apostle says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul here speaks of the reality again of being crucified with Christ and being united to him in his life. And he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this, this is it, Christian. This is it. When we are placed in Christ, we find ourselves in two realities. In fact, you see this in Ephesians. When he says, when Paul writes, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He, he speaks to those two 
locales, those two realities. You are in Ephesus, and yet you are faithful in Christ Jesus. You live in both places. How am I to live in Ephesus? I can only live in Ephesus as God would have me live as I am abiding in the reality of being in Christ. That is my only hope for living in Ephesus or Spokane Valley. When we enter into Christ, we enter into a warfare between the reality of this world and the reality of heavenly places seated in Christ Jesus. There's a conflict that occurs living in both realities. And if we are to live as he would have us live, we must learn what it means to abide in Christ. Be joined with him effectively to live out that effective union we have with him. I want to say just a a brief word here about salvation. When we think of being saved, we have a lot of interesting language, not all of it biblical, that we use to refer to being saved. I want you to understand that salvation is not an object. Do you ever remember you sat in vacation Bible school or in a Sunday school and you had a teacher that had like a present? They wrapped up a present in a box and they talked about asking Jesus into your heart. Remember? And they said, it's, it's like this. It's like God wants to give you a gift. He wants to give you a gift and all you've got to do is reach out and take it. All you've got to do is reach out and take that gift and it'll be yours. That picture is not helpful for understanding who you are actually in Christ. It's not a helpful picture because salvation is not an object that God or Jesus gives us. It is not something that he has done for us and then gives to us and then we receive it and we have it. No, salvation is not an object. Salvation is a person. We are saved when we are joined with him by faith. The gift is not a salvation apart from Christ that Christ has worked and given to us. Salvation is Christ himself. We are joined with him by faith. And his life becomes ours. His death becomes ours. His resurrection becomes ours. And his ascension and and victory and triumph becomes ours. And as we live here, we are to pursue the reality, the understanding of it and the living out of it, of that salvation that he has already accomplished. That's what our life is to do. Paul the Apostle, who we began with on the road to Damascus, 
the one who writes much of this language of being in Christ, he talks about this pursuit of the salvation that he already has, and yet he has not fully grasped. He talks about it in Philippians 3. I want you to turn to Philippians 3. Can you do that? Ephesians, Philippians, right after there, right after Ephesians, Philippians 3. Paul spends several verses talking about his past life and all that he used to depend on and all that he had accomplished and all the things that he could trust in, all of his accomplishments. And then verse 8, he says, Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see that there? He says, I press on to make it my own because it is already true. I go on to make this true because it is already true. I go on to live this way because I I am bound with Christ. I go on to make it my own because He has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, He's saying over and over again, I have not arrived. I've not fully comprehended it. And again, if you think you have, I would just say, are you the Apostle Paul? Because He says, I haven't fully grasped it. But I am pursuing it. I am after it. This reality of being in Christ, he says, I'm after it. I want, I want the power of his resurrection. I want the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him with my life. One thing he does, he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to that what lies beh- ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the goal of the Christian life. To grow into Christ. To grow into Him. Say, I don't understand union with Christ right none of us do none of us do fully comprehend it I know it's true because God's word has told me it's true and and honestly when I see the truthfulness of it I go I can't believe it (laughs) it's just too good to be true I have been joined in his life I have been made one with him his life is my life I've been wed to Christ Yes. And my hope is that now we would pursue 
understanding that reality and living in light of that reality. I'm closing with this illustration. I was sitting in my office with another female counselor. We were counseling a lady uh, many, many months. We had been counseling with her and she was in a marriage that really was horrendous. She was alone. She had been abandoned. She had been neglected. She had been left by her husband. And I was sitting trying to explain to her the satisfaction and the joy that comes in Christ. Saying things like, look, look to Christ. Dear lady, look to Christ. I, I know you're enduring great suffering, but look to Christ. He is all you need. He is your greatest satisfaction, your ultimate joy. Look to Christ. And at one moment in that conversation, she looked at me and with loud voice said, Stop telling me to look to Christ. You keep telling me that, but he's not sitting there in that chair. And that's what I need. I need someone who will hold my hand. I need someone who will put his arms around me. I need someone who I can talk to. I need someone who is physically there. Stop telling me to look to Christ. What I need is someone sitting in that chair next to me. That's what I need. What would you say to her? You may say, well, that's why I'm not a pastor. That's, 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 trust me, there are many moments that I think, why am I a pastor? I don't know. And I, I did my best. But I've thought about that moment. It happened many years ago, and I've thought about that moment since then over and over and over again. And you know, part of me goes, I get it. I actually resonate a lot with what she said. Because we use that language all the time. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus. But you know what? (laughs) What I need right now, I need somebody there. You can tell me that, but I'm hurting. And I get it, I get it. There's there's this reality, I, I get it. But what I really need is fill in the blank. I've thought about that over and over again over the years. What would you say to her? Maybe you're here this morning and that's how you feel. Being told to look to Christ and yet your need feels more immediate than that. More, if, if I can say this, more real world than that. Can I encourage you this morning? Christ is not sitting in the chair next to you because he is sitting in the heavenly places. 
securing for you every spiritual blessing. Everything. He is securing for you right now. Everything is yours in Him. Not only that, but He has entered you by His Spirit. You are in Him in the heavenly places right this very minute and He is in you. And there is not any place that you could go or be, no circumstance, no situation where He, he is not with you. And He has been there. He was man. He put on flesh and blood. There is no circumstance or situation that you could go to where He has not already been before you. He's with you. And, as we've looked in several of these passages, He has joined you with Himself. And, and, and get this, that union is not exclusive. What do I mean by that? You are in Him, and He is in you, but you're not the only one. You're not the only one that that's true of. Did you see the language in all the passages we read? Or several of the passages? He has made a people, a building, a body, a bride that we have been brought into. If you are in him and he is in you, guess what? We are one with another And we are in a real way the hands and the feet of Jesus Himself. He is ministering and He continues to minister in real world ways, in real world time, through His body. I wish I would have thought of that in the moment. But the truth is, Jesus was sitting there in the room with her. She's looking at the face of two people who are Jesus to her. In a real way, holding her hand, putting their arms around her, talking with her, loving her, providing for her. And this is how God ministers through Jesus, through the body, to his people. Jesus may not be sitting there in the chair next to you, but can I submit to you that there is something far greater than that? Sitting in the heavens. He's dwelling in you and he is here even now in our midst. We are his body. And this is a glimpse at the nature of union with Christ. I want you to to long after it. I want you with Paul to say, I I pursue it. I want to make it my own because he has made me his own. I want to know it and know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth, for this reality. I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our lives that we would be in awe, even as we leave today, we would be in awe and that there would be in us created a thirst, a desire 
to know more of this reality. That we would seek to know more of who we are. That all of the identities that we may cling to in this life would be as nothing compared to knowing Christ and being found in Him. I pray that that would be our heart's desire. In the midst of a world that seems chaotic and dark and crazy and painful, that all of that would become nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. I pray for you to do that work in us by your mercy and by your grace for your glory, for your glorious, to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, we pray that now in your name. Amen.